Mark, it's always interesting following after you, getting the microphone back on. If you would stand with me this morning, we're going to read from uh, the end of Hebrews 11, starting in verse 30, and then we're going to go to uh, chapter 12, verse 4. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, of David, uh, of David and Samuel, and of the prophets, who who brought uh, faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they were about skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of earth. And all these who commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance to the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet rested to the point of shedding your blood. You may be seated. Good morning. Excited that we have another opportunity here to have the word open before us. We've got, as you've been, some of you have been here uh, the last few weeks. We've been journeying through uh, the book of Hebrews and chapter eleven in particular. And uh, Lord willing, we'll finish Hebrews eleven today. I'm looking forward to what the Lord has to teach us here. Uh, I think there are many, many things the Lord would have us to to know and to grasp, to take a hold of, and then to walk in. So. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to begin our study together. Lord, we've, we've come to the end of this instructional chapter on faith. And I ask this morning, Lord, that you would show us the truths in these verses that you would have us to know. I ask also, Lord, that you would reveal the falsehoods that perhaps we've been holding on to as we come here this morning. And perhaps... Hearing your word will reveal some falsehoods that we've uh, latched on to over time. I pray that you would replace those with your truth. And Father, I pray that we would come before your word this morning with a spirit of humility, desiring to hear your voice, to know your ways. And Lord, I pray that we'd have eyes to see the most important things in this life. Tune our hearts to what you deem to be the most important. And may our affections this day be set on the most important things you have to offer. 
Help us to grasp the truth that the most important is not the most immediate. It's not the most present, the most accessible, the most tangible, nor the most popular. The most important things are yet to come, and they are presently unseen. Therefore, let us live with a future certainty and a visual certainty. For, Lord, as you've taught us in your word, this is the essence of faith. May we be a people looking forward to the reward of Jesus and residing forever in that heavenly city that you've built. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the Bible is made up of fill in the blank. How many books? 66. The Bible's made up of 66 books. And in my Bible, that's about 863 pages. If you have large print, perhaps you have more pages. But if you were to start in Genesis and you were to go all the way through Revelation, what would be the overarching message of the Bible? Imagine having read all 66 books of the Bible, and now you are assigned to write a summary of the Scriptures. By definition, a summary gives the most important parts of something in as short a form as possible. The most important parts in as short a form as possible. You know, there's one way we could summarize the 66 books, and we could do so by genre. We have the books of the law, the Pentateuch, right? The books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. We have the history books from Joshua through Esther. We have the wisdom literature or poetry from Job to Song of Solomon. We have the prophecy or major prophets, right? Isaiah through Daniel. We have the minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. We then jump into the New Testament. We have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, followed by that one book which is deemed the church history book. What is that book? That's the book of Acts. Followed by uh, Paul's epistles, Romans, all the way through Philemon. Followed by what's called uh, general epistles, not written to maybe a person or to a church, but to a general audience. So we have Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First and Second, Third John and Jude. And then we have that last book of the Bible, which is a prophetic book of Scripture, apocalyptic book, Revelation. Genre is one way we could summarize the 66 books. Another way we might summarize the 66 books would be by eras. And some of you may be familiar with the term uh, that's used by Answers in Genesis, the, the seven seas. You have creation, you have corruption, you have catastrophe, referring to the flood, and you have confusion, uh, Tower of Babel. And then you have, uh, in the New Testament, you have Christ, and you have the cross, and you have the consummation. You might choose to write a summary based on the themes of the Bible. What are some What are some themes that you see weaving throughout the whole of Scripture? Love, grace, mercy, his faithfulness, his deliverance of his people. You might simply summarize the Scripture by division. We have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. Another way just to put a simple division summary. But we might also summarize the Scriptures with a summary statement. You know, one of the things I came across... Uh, And I've had it written in the front of my Bible for some time now. But it was just a helpful summary that someone had had written and I jotted down here in the the front page of the Bible. It says, the one story of the whole Bible. 
God provides salvation for his people through his son. God provides salvation for his people through his son. The one story, if we're to put a summary, it's the one story of this Bible that God's given to us. Perhaps you would choose to select a verse, have a summary verse that would encompass the whole entire scripture. Verses like John 3.16, for God so what? He loved, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. John 3.16 summarizes very well the whole of scripture. What about Romans 5.8? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 14 and 15. Two of my favorites. For the love of Christ compels us. Compels us. It's our driving motivator. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Matthew twenty-two thirty-eight. I like the Holman Christian Standard translation of this verse. Matthew twenty-two thirty-eight says, this is the greatest and most important commandment. What do you think that's referencing? Anybody know? Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, right? Jesus says, with all your mind. The greatest and most important commandment. There are all kinds of channels through which we can effectively summarize the 66 books of Scripture. But what if we were to narrow the focus just a little bit? What if we were to take a zoom lens on the book of Hebrews? And what if we were even to zoom down a little bit closer to the book of Hebrews chapter 11? How would you go about effectively summarizing Hebrews 11? I believe verses 30 through 40, what we're looking at this morning, represent the summary of the whole chapter. And in verses 30 through 40, we're going to point out the most important parts. The most important parts, this is the fourth and final week in Hebrews 11, and, and I want to summarize, as the Lord enables this morning, the entirety of the chapter in these final 11 verses. And so what we've already covered to this point, we've already seen a summary definition given in the chapter. Verse 1, right? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The outline for today Really, in many, many regards, there's two parts to it. The first part is faith's examples. And this is not a new thing. We've seen several examples of faith to this point. But we're going to see two additional ones here this morning. Faith's examples. And what we've seen and what we've come to find out about faith's examples in Hebrews 11 is that this, this is a, a, a gallery of people who take God at his word and they act accordingly. So we're going to look at faith's examples, a couple more this morning. And then secondly, we're going to look at faith's outcomes. Faith's examples, faith's outcomes. And what we're going to see about faith's outcomes is that they result in both deliverance and defeat. Triumph and death. And then the last two verses, 39 and 40, we'll just look at that as faith's bottom line. What is it that the Hebrew writer leaves us with in the final two verses of the chapter? What's the bottom line for us to grasp? Okay, that's where we're going this morning. Faith's examples, 
faith's outcomes, and then faith's bottom line. What's the message for us as a takeaway? Okay? With that outline in mind, let's look at the first two examples of faith in verses 30 and 31. I want you to remember faith's examples as we've seen in Hebrews 11. They take God at his word. They act accordingly. And there's nothing new or different with the two examples that we're going to see this morning. Okay? Faith example number one. From the scripture in verse 30. Okay, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along with me. It's right here. I'm not making this up. This is coming from God's word. Here it is. Hebrews 11 verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Now, Joshua chapter 6. You go back into Joshua chapter 6 in verses 2 through 5. It records the instructions to Joshua from the commander of the army of the Lord. And in summary, here's what he says to Joshua. Jericho is yours. The land and all the people in it. It's yours, Joshua. Here's the plan for knocking down what appears to be with your own eyes. As you look and you see this wall, what appears to be a formidable wall. It appears to be an unscalable wall. It appears to be an impenetrable wall. Here's the plan, Joshua, for seeing this wall come down. And he says, you and your people are going to march one time around the city for six days. And on the seventh day, Joshua, your people are going to march seven times around the wall. And on the completion of the final lap of the seventh day, the priests are going to blow their trumpets. And when they blow their trumpet blast, Joshua, then all the people are to shout with a great shout. And then the wall of the city will fall down flat. Literally, that phrase is, the wall will fall in its place. Picture that. Massive wall, and that massive wall is going to just fall right in its place. That's what the commander of the army of the Lord tells Joshua. This is the plan. Now, Joshua moves from hearing about the plan to having now communicate this plan to his people. Now, for, if we were just to push pause right here, I would venture to say that many of us would be wondering how our people are going to respond to this word of instruction. How am I going to, as a leader of the people, how am I going to communicate this one to the people? Well, if we read the account in Joshua, we see that there are no signs of wavering. There are no signs of questioning. No signs of doubting on behalf of Joshua. What do we see from Joshua? We see obedience. And yet I can't help but ask here, who fights this way? I mean, who thinks it's a good idea to conquer another nation by marching around walls, blowing trumpets, and shouting out loud? The fighting soldier is accustomed to fighting with his weapons. He's armored, he's equipped to fight the battle. We have tanks, we have planes, we have battleships. And even back in the day, we might think of bow and arrow, we might think of sword, we might think of cavalry. But a steady dose of marching around the wall, blowing horns and shouting, who fights this way? You see, asking these questions helps us arrive at the doorstep uh, doorstep of faith one more time. The example is put forward to show 
that massive walls do in fact fall when faith is exercised. And in this instance, the nation of Israel, as well as Joshua, walk by faith to gain the victory that God had promised. I want you to notice something in the text. This is, this is interesting to, to take note of. 29 and 30 in the text, in, in Hebrews 11. I want you to notice the time span between those two verses. We have the Red Sea crossing with Moses, and we have the walls of Jericho falling. Absent here in the text is that period, what we call the wilderness wanderings, right? The generation that died out because of unbelief. Hebrews 3 and 4 has already talked about that and given that as an example of their unbelief. This group crosses the Jordan, possesses Jericho. This is another generation. This example of faith in verse 30 is highlighting a time... When the nation actually operated in faith, not just the leader of the nation. The nation operated in faith. They listened to Joshua's plan as passed on by the Lord's commander. They carried out the plans just as Joshua gave them. And the result, the walls came down just like God said they would. You see, faith is being fully convinced that what God has promised... He is fully able to perform. Right? Romans 4.21. The people and Joshua were fully convinced in God's word. They believed his promises of taking Jericho and they acted in accordance with the word. They trusted that God was with them even as they marched. I love what, what Kent Hughes says here about this. He says, central to Israel's great exercise of faith was the awareness that God was with them, leading them. He says, we must emphasize that they were not imagining this. God was truly present. But he manifested himself specially through the ark. Remember the ark of the covenant that was with them, going along with them around the wall? And the realization that he was physically in their midst had a massive impact on the Israelites' exercise of faith. And I got thinking about that. Do we walk by faith knowing that God is with us? Closer than he's ever been, in fact, with us. Not in some box. But the Bible says that if we have Christ, we have the spirit of Christ dwelling within us. He's in us through the spirit of Christ today. Do we march out in faith aware of his abiding presence with us? So that's faith example number one. Faith example number two follows in verse 31. This is Rahab, the harlot. Again, look to your Bible. This is where we're at. This is where this all comes from. The scripture. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. When she had received the spies with peace. In Joshua 2, go back to the book of Joshua, and in Joshua 2, it recounts the time when Joshua sent two spies. You know, I think Joshua learned some things as he was under Moses. Moses sent 12. Joshua sends two. Isn't that great? Sends two. I think there were some lessons learned there from Joshua. You know, you send 12, and 10 of them come back and say, ah, we can't do it. And two of them say, yeah, we can. And we know the end of the story. Joshua sends two. 
And they go out and they spy out the land in Jericho. And they come to the home of Rahab, who hides them on the roof of her house. Now Rahab lives among a people who do not believe. She's known as a harlot. And yet she houses the spies, allows them safe passage, because she actually does believe what's about to happen. If you look in Joshua chapter 2, there are certain phrases, certain things that she says to these men that tell you a lot about her heart. In Joshua 2 verse 9, she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. I know. How does she know? She knows. She's telling him, I know. She goes on and she says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. We've heard how the Lord. She didn't say, we heard what all the great things that Moses did. No, we heard what the Lord's been doing. We, we heard what the Lord did as he parted the waters. In Joshua 2 verse 11, she says, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. For the Lord, listen to this statement from Rahab. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Listen, remember she's dwelling among a people who don't believe. And Rahab is testifying here about this God of the Hebrew people. This, this Lord, this God of yours, he's God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so as a result of all of these statements, all of these things that she knows about God and believes in her heart about God, listen to what she does in verses 12 and 13 of Joshua 2. Now, therefore, I beg you that you will show kindness to my father's house and that you will deliver our lives from death. She sees that what's about to happen to her city is destruction. And she's begging these two people, begging that her life would be spared. And the two spies, before they leave, they confirm with some stipulations. Your whole family must be inside this house when we come. Anyone outside these walls, they're not guaranteed safety. The second thing they say is that you, you can't tell anyone about this. this. This is no longer an oath. This will be a broken deal if you tell other people about this conversation. And the third thing, and probably one of the more significant aspects of what they tell to Rahab, you must bind the scarlet cord from your window. Remember that? Rahab agrees with the words, according to your words, so be it. And I love the step of faith that Rahab makes as the spies leave her home. In, in chapter 2, verse 21 is where you find this. She sent them away. They departed. I love this. Here's what it says. And she bound, so she sends them away. And the first thing she does, she bound the scarlet cord in the window. That's the first thing she does. She, she's wanting to prepare herself. She's wanting to get ready. Because she really does believe in this God of the Hebrew people. It was ultimately now coming to be more and more her own. James 2, 24 to 26 says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, now you've got to remember in the context, James here in chapter 2 has already given an example of Abraham. Abraham is a man who was an example of one who was justified by works and not by faith only. And then he says, likewise... Was not Rahab the harlot? Listen to the two examples, two extreme examples. Abraham and Rahab. Can we get further contrasts for examples? 
Rahab the harlot, justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. That's how James 2 ends. Ken Hughes says, 11, uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews in verse 31, cites Rahab as an example of one who was saved by faith. And James 2.25 says that she was saved by works. There is no contradiction. For Rahab was saved by a faith that produced works. Let's get that. She was saved by a faith that produced works. Rahab the harlot, in fact, is remembered in Matthew's gospel as one of the women mentioned in the line of Jesus. Right? Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Right? Simon begot Boaz by Rahab. And then we had by Ruth. And then Obed begot Jesse. And you might recall the familiarity here. Jesse was the father of David. Okay? Rahab did not perish with the unbelieving. Her lifestyle pattern pointed this way. Her people lived this way. And yet she believed God. She believed who he was and that he was all that he was doing. And she wanted to follow him. She heard what God had done. She recognized his power at work. She wanted to be a part of what God was doing. I think in many ways Rahab endured as seeing him who is invisible. All these unbelieving people in Jericho, think about it. And Rahab and her family are spared. She chose to believe in God with the light that she had and didn't just go along with the unbelieving crowd. The examples in this chapter are instructional and as we covered last week, really only explainable by faith. Human wisdom, when you, when you look through the examples here in Hebrews 11, it doesn't make sense. Why would you march around a wall instead of going right to the front with battering rams. Why would you do these things? Well, we see the examples in Hebrews 11. And the examples are explainable. Their lives are explainable only by faith. Remember, faith's examples take God at his word and they act accordingly. I want you to notice something, though, in the, in the text... We get to verse 32, the writer turns a little bit of a corner. He says, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. It's quite a list of names right there to just skim over. David, right? I mean, and you might also scratch your head at Samson. We're going to get to Samson in a few weeks. I want to talk a little bit about his life. He's here. He's in the gallery. He's, he's mentioned as one who lived by faith. But having submitted this long line of examples up to this point, men and women operating by faith, he asks, what more shall I say? In other words, do I have to keep going and giving you examples at this point? Do you, do you get what I'm talking about? The list could go on and on and on. That's the additional names in verse 32. And the writer here now goes from specific examples of faith to describe specific outcomes of living by faith. So we go from faith's examples to faith's outcomes. 
faith's outcomes. And what we see is that they result in deliverance and death, triumph and defeat. What we have here is a summary of outcomes. If you look at verses 33 through 35, the first part of 35, you see outcomes of deliverance and triumph. If you look at the end of 35 through 38, you see outcomes of death and defeat. Let's look at the first part, faith's outcomes of deliverance and triumph. Notice in verse 33, it begins as it's continuing from where it left off in 32. Who through faith, what did these examples do through faith? And what follows is a list of Ten favorable outcomes of men and women who live by faith. Now listen, we like this list right here that we're about to read. We like this one. Follow with me as I read. Who through faith, listen to what they did, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, really? Stopped the mouths of lions. Hopefully that reminds you of someone in the Bible. At least one, maybe more. Quench the violence of fire. Escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again. Wow, that's quite a list. You know, we tend to think living by faith equates solely to this list in verses 33 through the first part of 35. And that can be a problem. See, because in the middle of 35, a shift takes place in the outcomes of those living by faith. I want you to notice the shift. Maybe underline it if you write in it. Mark it down. The middle of 35 begins with the word others. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. You mean this kind of resurrection is better than the one mentioned at the beginning of verse 35? Yes. That's what the text is advocating. The former brings someone back to life. The latter raises to everlasting life. It is better. But then you stop to think, raised from the dead or tortured... We need to understand, both are outcomes of living by faith. One outcome is pleasant and the cause of much rejoicing. Just ask the widow of Zarephath or the Shunammite woman. I'm sure they would just talk your ears off, explaining the joy that came when their sons were brought back to life. The problem comes... When we only connect a deliverance outcome, this is important. The problem comes when we only connect a deliverance outcome to living by faith. This is the teaching of some who who preach and, and teach that living by faith results in health and wealth and prosperity. In fact, some would advocate that you just don't have enough faith if you find yourself sick, if you find yourself in need if you find yourself on the low end of the economic scale. They point to your lack of faith as the issue. And while it may be true that some do lack faith, 
The reality is this, as evidenced right here in Hebrews 11. Faith's outcomes result in deliverance and defeat. Triumph and death. If we look at that list in 35 through 38, outcomes of defeat and death. You know, there are lots of people who rally around the outcomes of 33 through 35. But you don't hear too much airtime on the outcomes of 35 through 38. Others were tortured, not accepting the deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 36. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, in the chains of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Now you might hear of some of these situations through a particular missionary organization that you support, perhaps. But you don't see it typically, you don't hear it typically on any of the major news stations. It's not widely broadcasted. But the Bible is truth. And it gives us the other side of faith's outcomes. I'd like to push pause here for just a moment and ask, how do these outcomes in 35 to 38, how do these outcomes settle on your own spirit here today? On one hand, they might cause you to remember those who are even now in chains for the cause of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, reading this list might lead you to repentance. It might cause you to submit your own life under the mighty hand of God. It might humble you greatly as you consider your own past thinking in this matter. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, yes... And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I'm convinced that a lot of us don't like that verse. Notice it doesn't say might suffer. It doesn't say it's a possibility. It says those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And you know the Hebrew audience to whom he's writing here. They have experienced some of these unfavorable outcomes already. Look in your Bible at Hebrews 10, starting in verse 32. He says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became the companions of those who were so treated. For you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You see, as you consider the two outcomes listed in verses 33 through 38, you might be wondering, why would God draw it up this way? I mean, I always thought that, that, that he was always protecting, he was always watching over the way of the righteous. I thought he was always about rescuing those who walk by faith. And these are some good questions. Ones we need to be addressing even in our own homes. We need to grasp that we are not home yet. This world is not our final home. We are pilgrims and sojourners here for a time. And we need to see outside the box of this world and realize that death 
can actually produce the good that God is after as well. You see, we think good and oftentimes link it to life, prosperity, favorable outcomes. But listen, God and good actually includes trials, sufferings, afflictions, and yes, even death. Do you believe that God can receive glory through the death of his saints? Do you believe that? That he can receive glory through the death of his saints? See, let's detach ourselves from thinking good must be something favorable to me here on earth. I was reading this week one of the chapters of Paul Nyquist's book. He's written a book called Prepare, subtitled Living by Faith in an Increasingly Hostile Culture. And he has, it really ties into what I've just talked about because he uses this idea, this word of blessing. And he says that the word blessing uh, has a positive connotation to us. And he says, we equate blessing with a new job, a new house, a banner year for our company, a big bonus at work, a new baby, a clean medical report, or an acceptance into the college of our choice. In our Western mindset, Conditioned by the affluence surrounding us, God's blessings are pleasant and enjoyable. When the opposite happens, suffering, hardship, loss of job, loss of health, financial strain, blessing isn't usually the first word off of our lips. As we cope with trials, we wonder if we're being punished by God. We question if we've somehow merited God's judgment. And we fervently pray that the burdens will be removed. In God's economy, blessings are radically different than our American perception. This is one of several, what he calls, counterintuitive principles we learn from the scripture. And here it's this, that persecution means you're blessed, not cursed. And he doesn't make it up. In fact, he he looks right to the scripture in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5 verse 11 says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. 1 Peter 3 verse 14 says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. James 1 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. That's a blessing, church. He'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So he says these verses challenge the American mindset conditioned to think divine blessings are always pleasant. We need to understand something. His ways, his thoughts are higher than ours, right? So while it may not totally register with us, we can know that God and good can also equate to an outcome of defeat and death. We see the outcomes listed here in Hebrews chapter 11. Living by faith is not simply one of many instructions in God's word. Living by faith is costly. Living by faith is not to be taken lightly. And living by faith has two primary outcomes as seen here in the text. Deliverance and death. Triumph and defeat. And perhaps what needs to be caught and taught today is an emphasis on the outcomes of defeat and death. To understand that godliness is not always going to merit you spiritual buttons from the Lord. Godliness will not 
always equate to a lifetime of hanging out on the mountaintops where the grass is always greener and life is easy and trial free. Godliness, a desire for godly living will lead to persecution. It will lead to tensions. It will lead to conflicts. It will lead to outcomes that are not so favorable to our flesh. Well, the course has been set. The examples, the outcomes are placed before us. And you know, the road that we travel, according to Jesus, is a narrow road. The broad road that is highly populated leads to destruction, but the narrow road has only a few on it. And, and the Bible says that's a difficult path, but I want you to look and I want you to remember where it leads. It leads to everlasting life. That's where it leads. We saw last week that Moses refused some things and he chose some things. Remember that? What he refused doesn't make a whole lot of sense to one who's attached to the ways of the world. And what he chose doesn't register to human wisdom. The world is not worthy of those living by faith, looking to the reward, enduring as seeing him who is invisible. So how does this chapter end? Having started with a definition of faith and shown two final examples of faith and listed two sides of faith's outcomes, what's the conclusion? What is faith's bottom line in this chapter? Look with me, verse 39. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So here's faith's testimony. Faith's testimony. We look at this scripture and we see that encapsulated in these final two verses, all the examples obtained a good testimony of faith. Some experienced outcomes of deliverance, others of defeat. In the end, though, all of them, apart from Enoch, all of them died. But none of them received the promise. All had faith, but none received the promise. What promise? And how does this promise differ from the promises in verse 33? Well, what we see in the life of some of these folks that we've covered in Hebrews 11. Noah, for example. Noah was able to obtain the promise that a flood was coming. God told him to build an ark and he built an ark. He told him why he needed to build an ark. He told him what was going to happen and Noah obtained that promise. God said that a flood was coming. And Noah got in the ark, he and his family, he obtained the promise. He experienced that flood. He went through that flood. Abraham and Sarah, they were given a promise that they were going to have a child. And they experienced, they obtained that promise of a child. Joshua obtained the promise that the walls of Jericho would fall down. Rahab obtained the promise of life that she would be spared from destruction. The promise that's alluded to in verse 39 is the promise of the Messiah to come. Christ hadn't yet come to the Old Testament saints described in Hebrews 11. And yet they live by faith, looking forward to their heavenly reward. All obtained a good testimony of faith, but no one received the promise. Why is that? 
Verse 40 tells us, God having provided something better for us. There's that word again, better, right? Our theme for this whole book study of Hebrews is anchored to someone better. And we see that word better, it just keeps popping up throughout. Here it is again. God having provided something better for us. Notice it's something better for us. And here we have to ask the question because there needs to be clarity here. Has God provided something better for us because we are somehow better than the saints mentioned in Hebrews 11? We've got to be clear on this. The answer is no, absolutely no. God, having provided something better for us, had nothing to do with us from the perspective that we deserved it or merited his provision in any way. God, having provided something better for us, points us to the arrival of his son Jesus through whom he's spoken in these last days. Hebrews 1 verse 2. The Old Testament saints and the prophets received the promise of the Messiah to come, but they never saw him. The men and women in Hebrews 11 obtained a good testimony through faith, but they were not recipients of the promise. God provided something better, the Messiah, God's Son, Jesus Christ, for us, for his people, for his church, over which Christ is the head. And so you have a group of saints looking forward to the promise, and you have a group of saints looking backward upon the promise having, having come. And so we see here in verse 40, I love what this says in verse 40, the last part, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They look forward in hope. And we look back, Lord willing, we look back, Lord willing we do this, with gratitude for the wonderful gift of salvation. The promise of Christ You see, truly, apart from Jesus, no one is made perfect. Amen? Apart from Jesus, no one's made perfect. No one's made righteous. It's only through his one offering that any of us are made perfect. And so the fact that God provided something better for us is nothing for us to brag about. There's no room for boasting here. God provided the lamb. God provided his son. God did it. Amen? God did it. Hebrews 10, 14, if there was a verse that we could just plaster over the uh, summary of, of chapter 11, I would go to Hebrews 10, 14. And it says, for by one offering, by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. By one offering, he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Through Christ's death at the cross, he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's wonderful news, isn't it? Through that one offering, through Christ's one offering. The Old Testament saints were not made perfect apart from us in that Christ hadn't yet come. But Christ has come since the writing of Hebrews. So we need to ask another question. So what's the author really getting at here? Christ has come. What's the bottom line for us as it pertains to living by faith? Listen, The most important part, remember we talked about this summary, the most important part of Hebrews 11 is Jesus Christ. Not faith itself. Not having a working definition of faith. Not the examples of faith. Nor is it the outcomes of faith listed. The most important part of Hebrews 11 is the most important part of this whole Bible, friends. It's Jesus. Remember that as you read... Always come back to that truth. 
There are lots of doctrines to explore and sort through. Yes, absolutely. Lots of parables Jesus taught. Yes, absolutely. Lots of people to learn from. Yes, absolutely. But Jesus is the most important part. Amen? Jesus is the most important part. Faith's bottom line makes clear the person of Jesus Christ showing his life and his death and subsequent resurrection as the pivotal hinge upon which the Old Testament saints and the New Testament Christ followers of today are brought together. We must not miss the Christ. Miss him, we miss the most important part of this chapter. We miss him, we miss the important part of the scriptures. You remember those words Jesus talked to the the Pharisees in John chapter 5? You remember that? This was a group of folks who thought that they had the scriptures, they had everything figured out. And he says to them these words in John 5, 39 and 40. He says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. He says, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life, Jesus says. These scriptures testify of Jesus. Listen, defining faith, providing examples of faith, showing the outcomes of faith. These are very helpful for us to grasp. But knowing the object of your faith and having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, this is the most important part, isn't it? This is the most important part. And I'm grateful for the Lord for how the chapter closes. This reminder to us. I'd like to give in closing what I I would just deem a Hebrews 11 closing summary. Five things. We're going to zip through it. Then we're going to be done. Hebrews 11 summary. Number one, it clearly communicates God's main idea. Clearly communicates God's main idea. What is it? Live by faith. God is looking for men and women today of faith to advance his cause here on earth. We, we saw at the beginning, right at the beginning of, of this study in Hebrews 11, we, we went two verses backward, I believe it was, into the end of chapter 10. And we saw there that the just shall live by what? Faith. We see elsewhere in Paul's epistle, he says that, that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. God's main idea is clearly communicated here in chapter 11. Live by faith. We see secondly, this summary, it, it clearly demonstrates God's big picture. His big picture. Some were delivered, some were defeated. All had the good testimony of faith. And God has called us to a life of faith. Here's the question. Here's the question as we think about God's big picture. Have we been too concerned about the outcomes associated with living by faith? In other words, will God come through for us? What will this mean? I have to suffer loss? God's big picture is that his followers walk in obedience to, to his word by faith, trusting that he is able to do the very things that he's promised. Listen, analyzing outcomes is not the job description God has assigned to us. He has given to us the responsibility, the privilege of walking by faith, not analyzing outcomes. Third, this chapter clearly reveals God's intention. I love this. We see this in these last two verses. Faith is not to be lived in isolation, but in connection with brothers and sisters in Christ. God has granted faith, not solely as a gift in itself to us as an individual. But this gift of faith is intended to be stewarded and understood within the context of body life with Christ as our head. I was reminded of 2 Timothy 2.22 here. 
Flee also youthful lust, but pursue. Listen to the list of pursue. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Now listen to where he goes with this. Pursue these things in isolation, by yourself, off in a corner. No. Pursue these things with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We're to pursue these things with the body. Not in isolation. Together in Christ. Number four. This summary, Hebrews 11. Clearly manifests God's redemptive story. I love this too. It manifests God's redemptive story. It's through these examples of faith that we're going to see here next, next time we get into Hebrews uh, in a month, a month from now. We'll go back into Hebrews 12. When we jump back into Hebrews 12, we're going to see it's through these examples in 11 that the author and finisher of the faith comes. Right? The redemptive story is, is being laid out here. His plan of redemption works through his people, leads up to his son. The promise has come in Christ. Someone better has now arrived. And to the Old Testament examples in Hebrews 11, that promise hadn't come. But new covenant living by faith is predicated on Christ. And we see in the scriptures that the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they're all pointing in this direction. They're all pointing to a better Messiah, a better covenant, a better way of operating. Not based upon works, but based upon faith alone, in Christ alone. Lastly, reading Hebrews 11 clearly prepares us to continue his story. Prepares us to continue his story. And I just love those first few words of chapter 12. Therefore, we also. Therefore, we also. You see, God has called us to be partakers in this something better that he has for us. Examples of faith are intended to continue through his church. And so much the more since Christ has come. So much the more since he's given to us the Holy Spirit. So much the more since he's revealed himself to us in his word. You see, the most important parts pertaining to faith are given to us right here in Hebrews 11. Faith's definition, faith's examples, faith's outcomes. But faith's bottom line is summed up in this. God has provided someone better. That's Jesus, his son. God has provided someone better who has offered something better. What's he provided? What's he offered us? He's offered us everlasting life, eternal salvation through his death on the cross. Isn't that wonderful news? He's offered that. Friends, have you received that this day? Have you received what he's offered? It's something better. Nothing is better than what he has to offer. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Listen, definitions are helpful. Examples are great to see. And outcomes give us an idea of where things are headed. But faith summary and bottom line is predicated on Christ's shed blood. Someone better offered something better through the cross. And that's the most important part. Let's be sure we get it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for bringing to our attention the most important part. Lord, we read a chapter of faith and and sometimes we can get distracted by uh, particular themes. These themes which are, are intended for us to know and grasp, yes. But the themes aren't intended to take precedence over 
the object, in this case, of the faith, and that is Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray we don't miss the most important part here in this chapter, the most important part of the Scriptures as a whole. Thank you, Father, through that one offering you perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We thank you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus. We thank you for your great love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, the Bible says that Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only Son, Jesus, to die. That whoever believes in this Son of yours should not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you, Lord, for Christ and and the love of Christ and how it compels us. It's our driving motivator for living now. Because we understand and we judge thus that if one died for all and he did... That we no longer live now for ourselves, but we live now by faith for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, I pray that we would remember that most important, the greatest and most important commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and strength. Father, thank you for your good word. Remind us as your people here today to walk by faith, trusting in you listening to what you have to say, acting accordingly, understanding that the outcomes listed here in Hebrews 11, these outcomes result in both defeat and deliverance, triumph and death. But help us to trust in you. Help us to know that you have our good, our best good in mind, even when we can't see it or understand it. Pray that we would be a people that hold firmly to you all the way to the end. Thank you for Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen.